If everyone in society only kept the Ten Commandments and nothing else, society would probably be transformed. If the Church of Jesus Christ only kept the Ten Commandments and nothing else, the Church would probably be transformed. If you and I only kept the Ten Commandments and nothing else, you and I would probably be transformed. The Ten Commandments are God's wise instruction for how human life works best. I love the way that one of my uh, children's, uh, children's Bible story books puts it. They said the Ten Commandments, the Ten Best Ways to Live. They're like an owner's manual for humanity. I mean, think with me for a second. Can you imagine what marriages and relationships would be like where there are no adultery and lust? Can you imagine what banks and corporations and tax laws and cities would be like where there are no stealing? Can you imagine what law courts and politics and social media and classrooms would be like where there are no bearing of false witness? See, this is revolutionary stuff. The Ten Commandments are revolutionary, life-changing, society-transforming stuff. And should we be surprised? Should we be surprised that instruction directly from the lips of the Creator would bring such healing and wholeness to His creation? He knows us like no one else does, not even ourselves. He knows how we are made. He knows our deepest desires and fears. He knows our deepest pains and regrets. He knows what makes us tick and live and thrive and jump for joy. Should we be surprised? Like all divine instruction and law, the Ten Commandments ought to be something that we find utterly delightful and desirable. As the psalmist in Psalm 19 says, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord. It is my meditation day and night. Your commandment makes me wiser than all my enemies. Your testimonies give me more understanding than all my teachers. How sweet are your words to my taste, O Lord, sweeter than honey in my mouth. See, God's intention for his people is to have the experience of the psalmist, to find his instruction delightful and desirable. Yet, if we're honest, our first instinct is often the opposite. It's defensive and resistant. I think sometimes when we hear the word commandments, we fear our freedom is going to be limited. Our options are going to be circumscribed. Our self-will is going to be diminished and our self-determination is going to be called into question. And in part, we're kind of right to some extent. But that earnestly held belief, which is so common in the modern Western world, that limitation of any sort will inevitably lead to our inhumanity and demise is simply a lie of the serpent straight from the Garden of Eden. Did God really say not to eat of that tree? See, we are creatures. That's the first thing that the Bible tells us about us ourselves in Genesis 1. We are creatures, not the creator, meaning we do not have limitless existence. We do not have infinite options. We do not and cannot flourish apart from loving dependence upon and obedience to the loving creator. And this means that our true flourishing, our true humanity as people made in the image of God cannot be had apart from that obedience to the wise guidance and counsel and law and instruction of God. 
On the one hand, we live in a culture that thinks law is inherently restrictive of human freedom. On the other hand, the Bible sees divine law as this gift that leads to true freedom. And this is why the church from its earliest years included the Ten Commandments as one of the four main pillars of catechesis, or that's a fancy word for spiritual formation and discipleship. Four pillars. There was doctrine, what should we believe? Well, let's look at the Apostles' Creed. There was devotion, how should we pray? Well, let's, let's learn from the Lord's Prayer. Then there was duty, how then shall we live? Well, let's look at the Ten Commandments. And then there was doxology. In light of all this, how should we worship? Well, let's look at the sacraments of baptism and, and Eucharist, that penultimate giving of thanks to God. And so the duty, how then shall we live, was the Ten Commandments, Christians thought. Because in the Ten Commandments, we encounter God's loving will for human life and relationships and society. And God shapes us into a holy and loving people. Oh, how I love your law, says the psalmist. It is my meditation day and night. Now, as we proceed on in our contemplations of the Ten Commandments, I think it'd be helpful for me to reread the commandments and then restate them as best I can in positive form. And then I would like to make a few observations after that. So the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, be loyal to the one true God who saved you. Two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. In other words, worship the creator, not the creation. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, honor God's character and reputation as weighty. Four, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. In other words, rest in the Lord. Five, honor your father and mother. Respect those who parent and have authority over you. Six, you shall not murder. In other words, cherish and protect human life in all its forms. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Cherish and protect marriage as the context for sexual intimacy. Eight, you shall not steal. In other words, respect another person's possessions, what God has entrusted to them, and be generous. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, speak truthfully about your neighbors, bless and do not curse them. And 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or servant or donkey. In other words, respect what is not yours. Rejoice in your neighbor's blessings. Now, as we ponder these 10 commandments, a few observations. The first is that the key to the whole is found in the first and the last commandment. The key to the whole is found in the first and last commandment. Let's begin with the last. The last is so interesting because, because already God has said, don't murder, don't steal, all these sorts of things. And then it's almost as if God reiterates these things in the last commandment, but he brings up the language of coveting. And so what he does at the very end is acknowledges that human desire is underneath human forms of action and attitudes and words. What we are and what we do cannot be separated from what we love. 
And so I think there's this implication in the last commandment that, that in order to obey all the commandments that have come before it, we need to deal with the deeper desires in our lives in order to be truly transformed by God. We need our desires at the deepest level to be purged of covetousness and reordered in love. And I think we're told that this happens only as we set our gaze on God himself, on his holiness and his loveliness and his beauty. And this is where it leads us to the first commandment. The key to following the last commandment, reordering of our affections, is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And it was Martin Luther, the great kind of 16th century German reformer that first uh, noted this in his shorter catechism. He said, the first commandment is the key to obeying and living all the other commandments, because the first commandment contains all the others within itself. So if you're struggling with fidelity to your wife, the way forward will always involve going back to the first commandment, relearning fidelity to God. If you're struggling with greed and this temptation to steal and take from another, the way forward will always be going back and learning your fidelity to God who is generous and provides for your needs. If you're struggling with this temptation to anger or resentment or cynicism, which underlies the act of murder, then the way forward is going to be go back and relearn this fidelity to God who is slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love. And so the key to the whole of the Ten Commandments is the first and the last, dealing with our deep desires that underlie our attitudes and our actions and realizing that they need to be reordered in devotion and loyalty to God. You shall have no other gods before. And the second observation is that the commandments teach us to love God and neighbor together, not apart. The Ten Commandments are clustered into two sections. You get the first four commandments, which describe certain sort of relationship of God with God. And then you get the second six commandments, which describe relationships to people. And these are put in a definite order, God, then people, but in a definite unity. God and all things in relation to God. Now, this is why Jesus responds as he does in the Gospels to that question about which commandment of all the kind of 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament that God gives his people, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, really simply, it comes down to this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. The first four commandments. And the second is like it, says Jesus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself the second six commandments. The second is like the first, says Jesus. And this is why the apostle John, who was so close to Jesus, one of Jesus's most intimate companions, so he knows the heartbeat of Jesus in a way that, that few others ever have. He says in his letter to the church in, in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot possibly love God, whom he has not seen. And, says John, this commandment we have from him, from Jesus himself. Whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. 
And I think this is one of the reasons this kind of impulse in the Ten Commandments of loving God and people always together, never apart, that which Jesus reiterates in his own teaching, I think this is the reason why we can never think of the Christian faith as simply a me and Jesus thing. As if we could check the needs and concerns of our neighbor at the door. First of all, I just don't think that's how life is actually lived. Our lives are actually lived in relationship to people at work and in our neighborhoods and, and in our churches and all over the place. But secondly, this is not how Jesus wants his disciples to live. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The church is meant to be a place where precisely because we are so unwaveringly committed to Jesus, we must talk about a great many matters, even if they're difficult and awkward to talk about, that are of concern to our neighbor and require divine wisdom in knowing how to love our neighbor as we ought. So think, for example, to follow the commandment not to steal, we must talk about greed and economics. <laughs> to follow the commandment not to murder, we must talk about anger and, and even historically in our country about race relations. To follow the commandment not to commit adultery, we must talk about lust and human sexuality. To follow the command to keep the Sabbath, we must talk about ambition and work and drivenness and, and identity issues that underlie that. To follow the commandment not to bear witness, we must talk about the nature of our civic discourse, the responsibility and accountability of our public leaders, and, and the way we are using words with one another on social media. And to follow the commandment to have no other gods before me, we must name the cultural idols that are a temptation for us. You see, there is a certain holism to the Ten Commandments, especially when we read them in light of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that encompasses all of life. And once again, should we be surprised that the creator that gives life also gives instruction that brings divine wisdom to bear on all that he has made in its goodness and its wholeness, in its interconnectedness. The law is a gift of God's love. So the third observation, the commandments come to us and they do their proper work in us in the context, the overwhelming context of lavish and liberating grace. There's no works righteousness here. There's no earning your salvation. There's no proving your worth before God and others. There's no room for moral and spiritual superiority. The context of the Ten Commandments is key in telling us this. God gives his law, verse 2, to those whom he has already redeemed. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the Hebrew Bible wants to emphasize this point so strongly that it combines verses 2 and 3 to form the first commandment as a whole, to drive home this point, that God who speaks to you and calls for your total devotion and total obedience is the God who has already redeemed you and drawn you in your totality into living fellowship with him. And so the language used here is that of freedom and liberation. To live by this law is to live in genuine freedom. 
Think of Paul's words from Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul, again, in Romans chapter 7, says Christians are those who know their own wretchedness and wickedness. Wretched man that I am, says Paul, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I should do. And yet, in Romans chapter 8, this wretchedness gives way to this overwhelming delight in God's superabundant goodness, as Paul proclaims that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. You see, God, says Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, does a transformative and regenerative work in our lives. So that we begin to hunger and thirst again for the law of the Lord. So that we experience the joy of forgiveness so much that it reinvigorates us into fresh obedience. So that we yield to the healing and the reordering and the empowering of our desires. So that we can follow God from the depths of our lives. And so that we delight in serving God as the perfect form of human freedom. You see, during Lent, I think we're given this profound opportunity to look into God's law as if in a mirror, says James, to acknowledge who we really are, to honestly assess and name our sins and to bring them to the foot of the cross. The doctrine of total depravity, which gets a bad rep <laughs> in some Christian circles, does not mean that we are as bad as we possibly can be. It just means that every area of our life is touched in some way by sin. Every area of our life is broken by sin in some way. It's kind of like we're, the picture is like we're a fractured stained glass window. We still glisten with beauty and light. But we're not all, we're not all that we were made to be. And Lent invites us not to shrink back or hide or fear from this divine exposing of our brokenness and our disordered affections because we know that our Redeemer lives. He has already nailed the record of our debts to the tree and triumphed over the powers of evil, says Paul in Colossians. He has already shed his sacrificial blood and taken away the sins of the world, says John in his gospel. He has already received the judgment for sin and made peace for all, says Paul in Ephesians. He has already done this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so now, as we come to the Ten Commandments, as the people of God, under the power of the Holy Spirit, we realize that our freedom becomes an environment for the flourishing of holiness and love. And we discover that serving God, obeying God, loving and cherishing God, is indeed perfect freedom. And so, my brothers and sisters, I commend these Ten Commandments to you not as a harsh burden, but as something that is to lift your burdens and free you up in relationship to God and to one another. On that note, let's pray for the increase of God's love. Oh God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. 
So pour into our hearts such love towards you that we loving you in all things and above all things may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.